Hey everyone, Ron Garen here. First, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to the Orbital Perspective podcast. What started out as a discussion around sheltering in place almost a year ago has turned into a discussion platform centered around making our world and our future better for everyone. Let's keep that discussion going. I also wanted to let you know that my next book, Floating in Darkness, A Journey of Evolution, launches on May 4th of this year. It's the sequel to my first book, The Orbital Perspective, and goes much deeper into solving the challenges that our world faces and how we can come together as one to create solutions. It's part autobiography, part action movie, part love story, with a message of unity that I would like to share with the world. For my loyal podcast listeners, I'm offering a 25% discount off the retail price. To get the savings, simply go to floatingindarkness.com forward slash order and enter the code PODCAST to save 25%. It's good for the next 48 hours, and it's my way of saying thanks for joining me on this incredible journey towards a better future. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the Orbital Perspective Podcast, where we dolly zoom out to a perspective where upcoming megatrends become visible. Every day, it is more and more apparent that we are in the midst of the great transition. Everything is changing rapidly. The fundamentals of business, government, and society are being rewritten almost on a daily basis. We are truly living during a time where the riskiest course of action is to stay the course. The most hazardous path is to take the tried and true. We are also living during a time where it is becoming more and more apparent that the status quo is not working. At least it's not working for everyone. And until the status quo is working for everyone, we will do nothing more than slap temporary band-aids on our problems and our challenges. We are presently dealing with crisis after crisis. But these crises can serve as a wake-up call. They can be our call to action to incorporate the changes necessary to make us all more resilient and better equipped to deal with the future crises that will undoubtedly come our way. The Orbital Perspective is all about transcending the divisive walls that separate us and embracing the awe and wonder of our shared humanity. What all the guests on the Orbital Perspective podcast have in common is they are all able to see things from a slightly different perspective. And when we look at issues from different perspectives, we see things in stereoscopic vision. Multiple perspectives allow us to see the depth of a situation below the two-dimensional us-versus-them surface. The other thing all our guests have in common is that they are all proof that you don't have to be in orbit to have the orbital perspective. Now, this is not an interview, and it's also not just a conversation between two friends. It's a conversation amongst all of us. If you're listening live, please post your questions and your comments so that we can bring you into the conversation. And if you're listening to the recorded conversation, still please join in with your comments and questions and be a part of this evolving community. Thank you for being here and being a part of this conversation from the Orbital Perspective. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to uh, another episode of the Orbital Perspective podcast. I hope this uh, episode finds everybody healthy and safe and dealing with and adjusting to uh, this new world that we find ourselves in in, uh, in 2020. And uh, as you heard in the introductory video, this is all about looking at things from, a, from different perspectives. And uh, I'm really excited about my guest today. She uh, certainly sees things from uh, different perspectives and uh, uh, causes us, I think, to, to look at things from different angles and to see how things fit together and to look at things over you know, a long time frame, which is another, another part of this. And so um, we're, uh, we're in the midst of a, of, a, of a great transition. We're in the midst of a lot of crises. And uh, the only way that we're going to get through all these crises is together, is by unifying, is, is through the shared strength that comes from setting aside our differences and working together towards common goals. And that's, uh, that's what our guest, Dr. Leila Ajarlu, is going to talk about today. And so with that, I'd like to introduce everybody to uh, Leila. 
design disruptor, creative boundary pusher, and cultural provocateur, Dr. Leila Ajaralu embodies the innovation that instigates positive environmental and social change. A designer, social scientist, and sustainability expert, she is internationally recognized as a leader in tools for the circular economy and the use of disruptive design across sustainability and educational initiatives. Layla was awarded the 2016 Champion of the Earth by the United Nations Environment Program and her 2013 main stage TED Talk that has collected over 1 million views is one of the most watched TED Talks on sustainability. Layla is founder of two design agencies, Disrupt Design in New York and Melbourne-based Echo Innovators, as well as The Unschool, her uniquely rebellious experimental knowledge lab that is all about disrupting the mainstream way that knowledge is gained and shared. It runs innovative pop-up programs around the world, and recently she took an abandoned farm in Portugal and repurposed it as a living learning laboratory for unschooled programs. The CO Project Farm is a bold example of sustainable design and social entrepreneurship. As a designer, her work is at the forefront of activated experience design. She continuously looks for new ways to solve complex social problems through beautifully designed interventions. Layla's creative work is highly acclaimed, having been featured in a permanent exhibition in the Leonardo da Vinci Museum in Milan and earning commissions from the National Gallery of Victoria. Layla is regularly invited to provide her professional opinions on radio and TV, having been a regular judge on the ABC TV show, The New Inventors, along with a host of international programs. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Dr. Layla Ajaralu. Hey, Layla. How you doing? Um, so great to see you. <laughs> Good to see you. And you're coming live from London, right? That's right. Layla is live from London. Say that six times. I'm, Ron is live from Roswell. <laughs> Everybody should be in a place where their name rhymes with it. Yeah. Normally, normally I'm in my basement in uh, in Boulder, Colorado. Today I'm uh, on the road and I'm uh, in a in a hotel in Roswell, New Mexico. So. Well, it is so great to connect with you again. I always love chatting with you, Ron. So looking forward and vice, to it. And vice versa. And this is not just a chat between you and I. I want to remind everybody, please send in your comments, your questions, be a part of this conversation. Uh, Layla is uh, a wealth of, of insight and wisdom and knowledge. And uh, uh, I sh I'm sure she could answer any question that you post her. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not any medical questions. <laughs> I'm not a medical expert. I have a DR, but not a medical <laughs> expertise. <laughs> so, so I'm thinking back to the time we met. Um, and maybe not maybe not the day we met, but maybe the next day, the day. So we met at, at the University of Arizona in, in Tucson, but the next day we were at an event in the biosphere, um, biosphere two, uh, just outside of Tucson. And I think that it is a pretty, <laughs> pretty um, fitting place to meet someone of, of your background and your and your life's mission and everything else, uh, basically to help uh, protect Biosphere One, which is the biosphere of Earth, um, and to uh, and to and to bring to people's awareness that we really do live on a spaceship, you know, spaceship Earth, and and that we need to watch out for the life support systems. Um, but I, you know, I think back on that day, and that was a wonderful day, and I, I remember we had some really uh, wonderful conversations. Uh, well, Ron, do you remember though when I first met you? Like, <clears throat> I think it was back in the at the university. Yeah. Do you remember what I did when you told me you were an astronaut? I don't remember. Okay, so you said to me, "I'm Ron. I'm an astronaut," and I started petting <laughs> no, your shoulder. I would never say that. <laughs> I just I that. stroking your shoulder, and I was like, "A real astronaut." Because I'm Australian and I haven't actually ever encountered in my life an astronaut in the real flesh and blood. And what surprised me is since then I've learned that only like, what is it, under 600 people in the entire world have ever left Earth's orbit or Earth's atmosphere. So, you know, the, the, the chances of one meeting an astronaut is still quite rare. So, yeah. and then the next thing I asked you is what does it look like from up there? It looks just like this. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think you actually were a little bit more descriptive than it looks like this. But um, and then you showed me artwork that you made of what's what Earth looks like from space, and I was like, "Can I be your best friend?" 
<laughs> but I do recall as well being at Biosphere 2 um, the next day and it, and I was so um, so overjoyed to be there because I had learned about Biosphere 2 in my sustainability program back at university. And I was absolutely completely mesmerized by this idea that, um, you know, in the 90s, someone would invest a couple hundred million dollars to try and replicate Earth's atmosphere and then lock eight people inside a giant dome to see if humans could indeed replicate Earth so that we could live in space or we could live on Mars or wherever else. And um, so it was really surprising to me to learn not only about how uh, not so successful to say in a nice way it was, um, but also to walk around the biosphere and to see how much um, machinery was required to actually make this natural world work. And I don't know, did you go underneath? Did you go into the belly of oh, the yeah. And the lungs. Um, so he said Spaceship Earth, and I'm a big fan of Buckminster Fuller as well, but who said, called, you know, Earth Spaceship Earth. But when I went underneath the biosphere, so at the top you have like the rainforest and the little ocean and you have a little fog desert and you kind of wander around and there's beautiful trees and everything. And then you go down like in, like literally down into the earth under the, the, the biosphere and it's all machinery and it's all steel and it's making all these noises and it's like completely alien to how, you know, we associate our lives and nature and stuff. So I found that to be so, um, evocative of the idea that we humans, we only have a kind of mechanical way of replicating nature. And that's one fascinating thing about um, the, the shift in perspective is not only, you know, learning to respect and appreciate the natural systems that sustain our lives every second of every day, but that nature is not a machine. There is nothing machine-like in the world. We are not machines. We are complex interconnected systems where if I took one part of my body out, the rest wouldn't work, except for my digestive system. That would successfully manage to exist without me because it's more other organisms than me. But the <laughs> thing is, is that, you know, that really struck me that, that the mechanical, hard edged um, side of things. So, you know, I find, what did you think about going down underneath the belly of the beast and seeing the, the mechanical side of Biosphere 2? Yeah, it's incredible. And I, you know, I don't think it was a failure. I mean, I, I don't think that they met all their objectives, but the purpose of it was to learn. And I think they learned a lot. I mean, one of the, one of the things that is touted as a failure is, is the fact that they couldn't control the, the CO2, right? And the CO2 started to get high, um, high levels. And we learned a lot about how the CO2 cycle on our planet works because of that. So because of that failure. And so there's well, a I have a I have a thing about failure, just to sorry, one second. I don't see failure as a bad thing. A yeah. failure is an opportunity to learn something new. Exactly. But I do find it like hilarious though that humans go and use all of their, you know, technical brain power and we make this machine of nature that did in a sense fail the occupants. We learned a lot, you're right, but they what got sleep apnea because of the CO2, they they were starved basically um and the experience like the ability for them to um live harmoniously as well was greatly jeopardized um by by the the system because that's the thing about nature is it's not just some it's not just eight systems that you can squish together inside a dome it's like millions of complex systems that right. are all interacting and working to harmonize each other so that we can actually get to the, thing, the state that the earth and our bodies and every other system that's living wants, which is homostasis, which is a sense of equilibrium. And I think that that's the thing that, that we really learned from Biosphere 2 is that, um, you know, nature is smarter than us, which is a very hard thing to realize, but a beautiful thing when you yeah. do. Right. So homo homostasis, right? So that's not just within our bodies, it's within our, our entire planet, right? And so we are not at an equilibrium point right now. As a matter of fact, you know, we are, you know, have all these crises that are that are swirling around us um, right now, many of which have been decades in the making, right? They're, and they're just coming to, hit, to a head now in, in 2020. And you talk about uh, design-led system change, right? So we, you also talk about how uh, and I sh and I really share this this view with you. How everything is not only deeply interconnected; it's deeply interdependent, right? And so, and just like the biosphere showed us, and down in the basement with all those machines, they weren't. None of them were 
working in isolation. They were all working in conjunction with each other. And we have living systems on our planet that all work in conjunction uh, with each other. And so what can you speak uh, about design-led system change that can help us with our, with our overarching systemic changes that we need to make on this planet to help us navigate through and, and get through these crises that we're dealing with? Okay, so I'll start with the design piece because this is often where people get a bit stuck. So the entire world is designed um, by us to meet our needs. Of course, nature is designed in its own way, but as far as um, every single thing around us, every single minute of our lives, we are interacting with a conformed material world. So the products, the services, the systems such as government or you know the hospital you were born in, um, the culture that you were raised in, these are all a product of human design um, industrial design, like culture and society, they're all coming together to create the world that we know that we live in today. And that um, is some by uh, kind of default, like evolution, you know, in a sense, culture and society kind of evolve over time. But the majority of the material world um, is completely constructed and designed by individuals or groups of humans to meet really specific needs like telecommunication or something to sit on, some clothes to wear to keep warm, uh, buildings to live in. So the design world is extremely influential because not only do we have to go to nature to take all of those resources out to make those goods and services, but we also then put things back into the, the natural world, be it pollution, waste, CO2, you know, flushing sewage from our toilets, you know, it all has to go back to nature, right? I always say the only thing that doesn't end up staying on this planet is space junk, which you <laughs> would be able to talk about actually, which is the millions of bits of debris from all the space explorations. I bet you, did you litter in space, Ron? I don't, well, no, I don't think I did. I almost got hit by a piece of question about space. Do you have, what, how, I know this is so crass, but truly like, you know, I, I heard that aeroplanes, they just drop the, the human waste out of it. What do spaceships do when you have to poop? Oh, that's a good question. So we basically do the same thing. And so all the waste of the space station all gets packed into a, a, a cargo spacecraft and it comes back to Earth, but it doesn't have a heat shield on it. So it burns up in the atmosphere. Oh. And so uh, it gets vaporized <laughs> in so the atmosphere. Vaporized, sorry. I should have said exactly. poop, but that's hilarious. So basically, yeah. yeah, so basically there's little bits of your your being roaming around vaporized <laughs> space. I don't know if that's correct. My being it, and the being of the meals that I ate. Yes. We're getting little, things are getting a little graphic. I think let's yeah, get back. I'll, I'll pull it back to the design systems change now. So basically, <laughs> yeah, so we design the world and the world designs us. That's one of the key things. So for every product or service or system that's around us, it's influencing us either in obvious or more subtle ways. So I say, you know, design is the silent social scripter that kind of helps us create the world that we understand and that we live in. Um, and so there's all these classic cases of really bad design and how um, our products you know, of our own design is what you're saying. Right. I mean, we are products of our own design. Yes, we are. Yeah. Um, very, very good synthesis, Ron. <laughs> so, but I just want to get people to think differently about design because, of course, it's it's a, um, a very sorry. My dog has just come over for a pet. Um, it's a very important part of our uh, entire experience of the world as a human, and will continue to be into the future. And it's really the intersection that we have with the natural environment. Um, a lot of the resources that we need to make good, like a iPhones or whatnot have to come from far-fledged places, minerals mined, you know, all of these different processes. So that's the design piece. We are products of the world that we design and in turn it designs us. But then we are also living a living system and we're part of a very, very complicated, beautiful, chaotic, mysterious set of systems that nature has evolved over millions and millions of years to sustain life. The only known life in the entire universe, which is pretty magical if you ask me, I'm sure you agree. Um, and so there's this um, other elements, you have this man-made world of industrial machinery and products and processes and then you have the naturally evolved systems and they are kind of not like this you have like biosphere a lot of disconnect between them so again that's where we have a lot of our problems um uh oh someone wasn't happy about my space weight <laughs> question well look i am very intrigued but don't get all taboo on on poop it's very stay on track stay on track okay so yeah basically the um the systems change component is that we need to figure out how to design products and services that meet our needs. So, you know, 
I'm going to say it, but toilets and sewage systems are a very important again. safety. Um, it's an important element of my argument. And so essentially we've designed all those systems, but there are actually huge environmental and social implications around any of these systems. Um, and th But that's really the big design challenge of our day is how do we meet our needs in beautiful and elegant ways so that we can live healthy and happy lives um, in ways that do not negatively affect the ability for future systems to meet um, to to be able to uh, be regenerative and um, create positive change. Sorry. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, so basically that's the whole design systems change concept. And there are many ways in which we can go about doing that. Of course, there's this huge movement towards the circular economy, which is about understanding how we can um, design waste out of our systems. And of course, that requires us to design our production processes to be more uh, regenerative, and more um, understanding of the natural systems and the world around us. So that's that's it in a nutshell. Um, yeah. All right. Well, let's let's take it one step deeper. So here, here's a here's a note from um, Monica talking about: uh, Do we understand this the concept that we are nature, meaning our environment is an extension of our existence, an extension of our being? Um, and I, I mean, I profoundly experience that in space. The interconnectedness, the interdependencies of everything that, you know, looking down at the, at the indescribably beautiful planet below, below me made me feel as if I was looking at a living, breathing organism that we were all part of. And that, you know, earth is a super organism, whether we realize it or not. And the, the brain of this super organism is an embedded super, super organism known as humanity. Uh, the problem is, is that uh, the super organism is unconscious, right? We, we don't act as uh, a unified body um, with the best needs of the overarching body in mind. We, we react uh, to, the, to our loudest parts. Uh, and uh, that's, that's part of the reason, if not the main reason, why we face so many challenges and problems is that we're not, we're not operating as a planetary community. Uh, we're operating as little stovepipes in our own little tribes. Um, so I know from a systems design point of view, there's a, there's a lot to be said for uh, about that. When you were in space and you were looking back at Earth, did you get like did you get a sense of disconnection from that system? Like because you are part of that system, you as a human, you you know, and you are now in this like literally physically disconnected from the system that sustains you. How how did that affect you? Yeah, I think that's literally why I had that experience is because I was physically disconnected from the only world I had ever known. Uh, I mean, unplugged from the matrix <laughs> or, you know, whatever, whatever analogy you want to use. I mean, one of the analogies is meditation, where in meditation, you, you become the silent, detached watcher of your own thoughts, right? And so I, I was a detached observer of the splendor and the miracle that is Earth and, and, and life on Earth. And from that uh, detached point of view, physically detached point of view, I, I was able to, to experience that. And, and uh, an analogy, another analogy is, you know, imagine you're at the rim of the Grand Canyon and you're looking at this beautiful scene in front of you and you're moved by that scene. But part of the, I mean, you, gravity is pushing you into the scene. You're inside the frame of the masterpiece, right? You're mm -hmm. part, you're part of that, that masterpiece. You're part of that art, that beauty. Um, but I was able to, to be outside of it and to, to see it from the outside. But you don't, what's really important to understand is that you don't need to be physically detached from the earth to realize the interconnected, interdependent splendor of this miracle that we call earth that is our world and um, how we can't treat things in isolation, that everything is connected and everything is, is interdependent. So that's an interesting thing. I mean, just to kind of sidestep here to talk about um, the, the COVID crisis and what we're in, you know, a lot of research has been done uh, prior to this crisis, but also as a result of it around the um, uh, ecosystem loss and the connection between ecosystem loss and zootopic diseases jumping to humans. Um, so Harvard has a study around it. Many other leading research institutes have basically argued that like the destruction of ecosystems is directly correlated with the rise of dangerous diseases and viruses jumping over to humans and affecting us. So yeah, what are your thoughts on that and how we can um, help elevate people's perspective of not only like 
the bigger picture of being interconnected. But the reality is, is that if we destroy the systems that sustain us, like a, a natural habitat, then we are exposing ourselves to more risk. Well, I mean, there's the obvious, you know, first order effects, right? Or if you live on a planet of finite resources, you can't have infinite growth, right? I mean, you can't have infinite consumption. Um, there has to be the, cir the circular economy, right? We have to be able to uh, re reduce our waste and take care of our life support systems and all that. But what you're speaking about is the is the second order, third order, fourth order effects, and they and they ripple out. I mean, COVID is affected by by global warming. I mean, uh, it, it's also affected by uh, deforestation and ocean acidification. Everything affects everything else, and every and everything especially affects everything else over the long term. And so we're right now paying the price for decisions that were made 30, 40, 50 years ago. And our great grandkids are going to pay the price for the decisions that we're making right now. Mm -hmm. And so what's really important is to think multi-generational, not only think interdisciplinary uh, and to look at third, fourth, fifth order effects, but to look at those effects over a multi-generational time frame, I think, because when you do that, things become clear. It becomes more complicated and more complex, and we tend to oversimplify things. We want really uh, simple answers, easy answers that 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 uh, work right now, that work today or tomorrow. But the world is not that simple, and you know the real problems that we face and the real challenges that we face have to be answered in the in the context of the real. Uh, multi-dimensional world that we live in. We don't live in a two-dimensional world. Yeah, I have a theory about that. I'll, I'll run it by you. None sure. of my theories land well. But so as humans, as we grow, we go from being quite close to the ground to getting higher and higher, and our eyes are on a, a on a horizontal plane for most of our lives. Okay, of course we lay down and whatnot, but we just spend a lot of our time looking at a, a one-dimensional plane in front of us, right? That's how we, our perspective. But we do live in a three-dimensional world, um, and we live in a very complex three-dimensional world where you can look up to the night sky and see the infinite possibility of the universe. And you can look down to a centimeter or a tiny patch of grass and see the infinite possibility of a bajillion microbes all doing their job, right? It's a mirror image, but we don't spend our time. You know, in the past, stargazing and, and wondering about the universe was a kind of philosophical, you know, conundrum. And, and um, the more information we've gotten, which is kind of ironic, the more myopic our view has gotten. So the more we know about the universe and the more we know about nature, the more our species has become fixated on the horizon versus mm. on being able to shift our perspective and look in this more three-dimensional way. So maybe we should all, I don't know, go upside down or something. I don't know. <laughs> so do you think that's because of the more we understand, the more... Uh, we understand the awe that the that the universe contains, um, and I mean, I I, I know that I, I've heard people say when they understand that the grandeur and the and the enormity of the universe, it makes them feel really small. Um, and I mean, do you think that's part of part of the issue of why? No, I feel like the more you understand the magic of how the world works and how incredibly abnormal it is in the whole grand scheme of the universe that there is life and that we're part of it and that we get to live it, the more um, exciting it is to be alive and the less significant problems of, of kind of daily insignificance become, right? So it's, I mean, I think it depends on how you view things and what where your value is on like what's important. For me, I've learned over the years that, um, you know, I, I like I think many people, you know, battle the concept of existentialism. Like, what is the point? Why are we here? Um, you know, I'm pretty sure that's a, 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 a this year has been the year of existential crises. So um, and one of the things that I find very humbling is that for whatever reason one is here in this moment in time, the very fact that we are is like magic, like I don't say that in a hocus pocus woo woo kind of way. I mean, literally the the infinite possibilities of something happening to create life in the way that it's been created and that we are who we are and that we have created this world that we live in with all of its problems and all of its chaos. Um, and for me personally, realizing or um, what's the word, owning that understanding of the world has given me a lot of agency as just one human with very like not specific skills or talents other than you know being extremely passionate about the planet 
to kind of take on a lot more um, space to have this conversation and to to, to yeah. kind of poke and prod and and push in the buttons and because it's just it's just magic like it's a complete and utter <laughs> miracle that any of us are alive yeah. Yeah. and you know that we get to watch butterflies and eat cheese you know so which so I, I think i think you're bringing up a really good point because i, I think the only way that we're going to solve the problems that we face is to is to start with the awareness and the realization that every single person and every life form on this planet is a statistical and mathematical miracle so every i mean the the person who flips you off in traffic the troll on the internet you know everybody is is a statistical and mathematical miracle and if that is the foundation uh from for, for problem solving for uh, interacting in society that the people that you come in contact with, every single person and uh, your little puppy, uh, are all absolute miracles. Um, the the chance of of any of us being here are are just beyond comprehension. Um, yeah, I think that also then strikes this like um, challenge around the problems, like you just mentioned, because there are a lot of like kind of like interconnected problems that are at play at the moment. And there have been throughout all of human history, right? Like one of the reasons we are have been so successful as a species is because we figured out how to control land to grow crops for ourselves, which was a huge challenge, you know, getting enough sustenance and food to not um, <laughs> pass out from a lack of energy has been a huge issue for humans for a long time. I mean, partly one of the reasons we were able to create agricultural systems was because of a stabilizing climate, because of the Holocene, right? Like 10,000 years ago, the climate just started. Did you know there used to not be water in the Mediterranean? I did not know that. No, like they were the, the during the ice age, all the oceans froze, so the water receded up, and then once it started to melt, then it kind of refilled again. What did they call it back then? I don't know. I don't think I don't know. It wasn't right. It was like <laughs> there wasn't any like you know text messaging back then. Maybe there was some hieroglyphs. I don't know. I don't know what they called it. But anyway, the point that I'm getting at is that, you know, we've been able to succeed and um, overcome challenges in the past as a species. And I feel that we will definitely be able to overcome these pressing challenges that are in front of us now, be it climate change, you know, waste crisis and COVID. Um, but the thing that I wanted to raise is this idea of um, the point that we're in, right? So, you know, 10,000 years Holocene, I'm not a geologist, but I got really into this when I heard about this concept, the Anthropocene, right? Like anthro meaning humans. And um, the reason this came about, uh, Paul Kutzen, I think his name is, kind of stood up in a conference and said it because these earth system scientists spent years documenting um, changes to the natural environment and changes to the human population. And they came up with all these graphs that um, demonstrate what they now call the great acceleration, which literally a hockey stick graph. So they're like, everything's fine, everything's fine, whoop, across all indicators right, on, on natural systems and how they are. It's like driving a car. Oh, it's like being on a spaceship and all of a sudden all <laughs> the doobie whackers go like this and you're like, quick, there's an emergency. Um, and so this kind of created this um, stark realization within the science community that there was a point very recently in these graphs where everything changed. And the great acceleration is the set of graphs um, that they're called, if you want to look them up. But the point um, is, is actually the 1950s and geologists since then have spent a lot of time exploring what it is that um, what it is that caused that. What do you think happened in 1950 that shifted all of these graphs about like the Earth systems and how they operate? You know, ocean acidification and stuff. What do you think happened then? Sputnik. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's close. It's very close. Yes. I mean, there were several things that happened, obviously, the, the, the baby boom um, post Second World War, but it was actually the, 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 um, the nuclear testing that started then. And so for over two and a half thousand nuclear warheads were let off um, around the world. And that's the point that they've started to state where humans actually have had such an impact on the earth that every single part of the planet has been affected by nuclear isotopes. And, you know, they've done sediment samples back hundreds of thousands of years, and they've got a tree off, a, off an island in New Zealand that 
no one's ever interacted with because it's like one random spruce tree living on a deserted island and its core has nuclear isotopes in it. So wow. this marker of this, I think, this kind of like great shift away from being in a more homostasis environment. Oh, that's really funny. I um, Sorry, I just thought of something in my head. Anyway, um, so we'll <laughs> just keep on track though. Um, yeah, so this kind of transition away from being, um, well, things were pretty messy in the beginning yeah. of the century anyway. So, you know, from a social standpoint. Uh, but anyway, from a, from a kind of understanding where we've come from and where we're going, a mindset, which is why I'm telling this story. So we live in this time now called the Anthropocene that has been yeah. documented as a time where humans, the anthros, have had such a huge impact on the planet that we've got, we're the dominant force influencing it. It's no longer ice ages or whatever. And I think to me, when I went and, and researched all of this and learned about it, I felt overwhelmed and then I felt really empowered. Yeah. I thought, well, crap, if we manage to create the mess, then surely right. we have the capacity we, to clean it up. We can and that's it. something to, for me that I think is has been really uh, inspiring because if we are the dominant force on the planet, well, then we can figure this out, right? Right, right. You know what's, you know what's interesting is the very day that I was born, the Soviet Union exploded the, what was called the Tsar Bomba, which was the which to this day is the largest human-made uh, explosion in history. It was a 50 megaton um, bomb that was exploded near the Arctic island of Novaya Zemlyar, which, which means New Earth in, in, uh, in, in Russian. And um, not to plug my new book, but I have a new book coming out where that's kind of the, the theme is, is the evolution of society um, and, and mirroring it with our own individual evolutions as, as people. Um, and so, you know, I want to pop up a, a question or a comment here from John. Uh, you know, you're a you're a, a UN champion of the Earth. You know, can the UN serve as a global platform, uh, getting the message out of, uh, of, of elevating public awareness and adoption? Uh, there needs to be a global platform, or the message is diluted. So, you you talked a lot about how we got to be the rulers of the world, right? Because of our, our ability to cooperate on large scales, right? But lots of species can uh, can cooperate on massive scales, ants, bees, fish, but all those species, including us, tend to limit their cooperation to their community. However, that's defined, the anthill, the beehive, the, the school. Um, we, I, I believe, you know, this, this year, 2020, everything's coming to a head and I think we're at a fork in the road. And in order for life to survive and thrive on this planet, one species on planet Earth, known as, as humanity, <laughs> needs to be, become the first species in the history of life on our planet to be able to figure out how to cooperate on a planetary scale. And basically to expand our definition of community to encompass the entire Earth and every living system on it. And so that's what we haven't done yet. You know, our, our cooperation and our collaboration uh, has not been on the scale that's going to be required to undo the damage that we've done. You said we've made the problem. That means that we can fix it. We can only fix it if we learn how to how to work together as, as a planetary society. Uh, I don't know if the UN is the answer. I mean, I know that that was the thought behind the UN, but, I, you know, yeah. uh, I don't think bureaucracy is necessarily the, necessarily the answer. Yeah, yeah. Well, I immediately put my systems mindset in and I you make me think of this kind of tragedy of the commons right. which is when you can't collaborate a, a common resource becomes exploited because different agents will basically take all the value out to, right. to keep it for themselves so the, the oceans are a classic case of tragedy of the commons you know in the sense that people just keep exploiting them um and and to kind of get that value for themselves and I think that you know, without going into too much of a kind of dissection of, of the, the species of human that we are, but we are a social pack animal. We do require kinship and um, a sense of uh, relationship, right? That it, there are so many factors that influence our willingness to um, engage with others or to the desire to oppose others, right? And some of those factors are kind of social, I mean, they've just been evolved over time, like our culture that we've been growing up in and whatnot, and the media and da da da, all these external factors. And some of them are internal as well. Like some of them are our own value sets of, of what we see to be important for ourselves and, and those and and how how we see ourselves in, in in relation to others. So I feel like 
I don't have an answer to this, okay, because it is a very complicated question. And, and I think that the UN and many other international organizations were set up with the best intentions and do the best they can under pretty complex conditions. Um, and when I say that, I mean that, I don't know, I think everybody listening to this would have had to be able to think of a moment where consensus decision-making, meaning you tried to get everybody in the room to agree to something, did not go very well. <laughs> like, because of those internal opinions and the external pressures, we often have uh, conflict over who's right and who's wrong. And um, so coming to a consensus, coming to an alignment, um, especially when it comes to really complicated things, uh, such as the use of resources or who gets to pollute and who doesn't get to pollute. On fact, like we've had the whole discussion over climate change at the UN level is, well, the Western countries made uh, all the pollution and got all the wealth. They extracted all that value out of nature and put carbon emissions back into the atmosphere in that process. And now we expect all the emerging economies to not also go through their own development stage and, and get the benefit of that extracted wealth. And that's basically been one of the main blockages of um, collaboration around uh, action for climate change. Um, whereas the Montreal Protocol, which was the successful UN agreement around the hole in the ozone layer, for those of you who are old enough to remember what that is, Ron, you probably remember what the hole in the ozone layer is, don't you? Yes. <laughs> but I think if you ask kids these days, they're like, no, I've got no idea. But, you know, basically there was an international agreement to phase out CFCs from refrigerators and hairsprays and, and it worked and they were able, now the hole in the ozone layer is repairing. So, um, yeah, I think that, it's, there, you know, there is so much other opportunities that we haven't explored yet that's the thing you know and that's again where the design comes into it because we can do, we, we design a lot of these systems like big orchestrating systems like the un is a product of design and we have the capacity to, con to kind of conceptualize those ideas and hopefully through um good procedures we can put them in place you know i mean what are your thoughts on on the kinds of um collaboration opportunities that we have in front of us? Well, I mean, I, I like I like where you're going with design-led systems because just out of curiosity, what's your opinion of CRISPR drawers? Of what? CRISPR, CRISPR draw, drawers and refrigerators. <laughs> I thought you meant CRISPR, the medical, like the gene editing. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you know, where you put your lines. My opinion, this is a big sideline. Well, I have a very strong public opinion on, on refrigerators and their design, and I think they're appalling. Well, I, I, I mean, I didn't, I, I, didn't, I didn't mean to derail us to go down that path, which is a really good path and we can go down it. But what I meant, what I meant by that, that awkward segue is, is <laughs> that we are, we are a product of our designs, right? And we have all of these human-made systems, whether it's our political systems or our uh, our uh, financial systems, our, our computer systems that that are molding us. We don't we're, we don't mold those systems to to meet our our needs as an overarching, you know, super organism. We we meet them, we mold them to meet the needs of of our uh, you know commercial activities. And in a lot of cases, that's very harmful to us. And so, you know, to answer your question, I think. Uh, if we can get smart about how we design our systems and our subsystems and, and our, and our cult, you know, whether that's cultural systems, business systems, political systems to, to not be the product of our, of our, not mold us into, into the likeness of our, our, our systems, but to mold our systems into what our, we want our visionary restorative future to look like. I think yeah. that would be a good step in the right direction. And I think you speak to this idea of like, you know, you get what you create, like we, there's all these sayings, you know, you get what you measure and whatnot. But I also think that we have this, um, um, we have this, um, oh, Keith, the crisper drawer is what keeps your vegetables and other vegetables fresh in your refrigerator. You know, those drawers at the bottom that are supposed to keep things crisp, but they actually don't. I think they should be called the soggy vegetable drawer because they're not designed effectively to create an, an atmosphere that oxygen doesn't, Slowly. I just wanted to see how easy it was, would be to sidetrack you. From the vegetables, yeah. <laughs> but I think the thing is, is that um, I've completely been sidetracked. I'm now redesigning CRISPR drawers <laughs> in my head. Um, I can't even recall what you had said. I'm sorry. What were you yeah, talking about? I got distracted with CRISPR drawers too. No, how <laughs> we, how we can, instead of being, instead of having our systems mold us into their likeness, you know, yeah. 
figure out what the visionary restorative future is and then design systems to lead us there. Yeah. So this is actually, you know, why I, I kind of took on the challenge of, of learning how to farm and, and grow food and, and restore a system. I took on a, an abandoned um, uh, farm and I tried to figure out how nature worked um, in a kind of embedded way. So I got very, very good at farming quickly through lots of failure. Um, but the thing that I learned through that of many things I learned, but one of the key things was that, you know, there's nothing in nature that doesn't have a role. And that role is usually of greater value after it's gone through its cycle. So every building, everything is just a building block for creating new life. Like life is optimized to create more life. So, you know, a tree that looks like it's dying is actually um, sharing resources with the other trees around it as the microbes come and degrade it. Or the fact that a tree stump that looks like it's dead is being still sustained by the, the trees, its its fellow friend trees that are near it, by mycelium, who's taking resources and sharing it because mycelium is like basically the, the highway, resource highway of the underground, you know. Um, and when you kind of spend a lot of time in natural systems and very closely observing them, you start to see these things and it's like, this magic curtain is kind of pulled from in front of your eyes and you're like, oh my God, this shit is magic, right? Like it's incredible. And we are part of that and we are beneficiaries of that. And so if you use that as a model for designing systems, that is that every part has a role to play in its first life and then how it cycles through, um, then we can really truly design systems that are regenerative, right? So sustainability is a pathway to regeneration. It's about figuring out how to stabilize, to not continue to, uh, extract resources at a faster rate than the earth can replenish as we currently are you know although this year because of covid did you know that earth overshoot day came back a month no yeah so this you know every year there's a measurement of when we run out of the earth's resources for that year what like allocated resources if we were to be sustainable and every year it's kind of come back since the 1970s and uh, last year it was in july so basically it was like the middle of the year we used up all of the, the the natural resources that we should have used but because of covid and the slowing down of the economy and you know extracted extractionary practices and pollution it, it went forward a year so a month sorry and so we ended up being in in august this year um so we, so, yeah. we all die in august instead of july now yeah but I, I don't think as well just for those people who are listening who might be like well we need the economy the economy is really important i completely agree and i think that there are so many ways of creating um, economic opportunities that don't destroy the systems around us. And that the reason we have so many polluting and wasteful and extractionary systems, other than GDP is the motivator, but is that we just haven't designed better options. <laughs> it's right. like, because there's, because we don't see a commercial. Challenge. There's not right. a commercial, there's a commercial incentive to, to put, you know, planned obsolescence into, in, into things. Right. I mean, there is, there is no commercial driver for, for companies yet. Uh, I think where that comes from is from consumers demanding it. Uh, demanding oh, I have it. so many things to say about planned obsolescence, Ron. It's like a trigger word for me. Um, but you know that planned obsolescence was intentionally part of an economic rebuilding post-Second World War because all the factories had been in the war effort and the industrial designers and other uh, entrepreneurs of the day basically publicly were saying we need to design things to break so that we can continue the wheels of the economy so that we can rebuild. So, you know, I mean, that worked then, but it doesn't work now. Yeah. And it works when you had several billion less people to start with, which is the case. Um, and it also worked when you had more ignorance around the uh, inability for certain systems to replenish themselves, there's a point where you've destroyed the system so much it can no longer replenish itself, right? Um, and that's really one of the key factors now is we have a lot of that knowledge and we're very aware from a scientific standpoint and also from a just a living in the world standpoint that, um, you know, if you pump a lot of pollution out into the atmosphere, then those people who are breathing in that pollution will die. You know, air pollution kills like 9 million people every year. It's a huge uh, health crisis that nobody talks about. So I think that the key thing here is is changing the way we see what is valuable and what is not. Like we don't value nature in any way, shape or form um, in our current economic model. But I think personally, especially COVID, has made people really reassess their values and consider that essentially one of the key things that is of, is of value to us is the natural world and is the people and the things that come from that. Um, and that is something I think that we are really starting to have uh, built into our modern psyches 
is that without nature, we are at a loss, literally, because we need food, air and water, but also culturally and, and socially and, and for some spiritually as well, like without the natural world living in its entirety and its beauty, we are at a collective loss. So, you know, I think that's one of the key things that, that we can all start to think about how we can um, contribute to regenerating some of the systems that are around us, even in small ways. You know, I have a worm farm on my balcony. I, I, I make soil <laughs> because soil is the best thing. We need it. It's very important. It sequesters carbon and it also gives back the building blocks to life for more food to be produced. So, you know, we all have the opportunity to make change, Ron. And so I think we can That's right. do it. And, and Leila, I, I really, really applaud what you're doing because I think when it comes down to it, it a, a lot of the problems that we face are, are a matter of ignorance. And I don't mean that in a, any derogatory way. It's a, a matter of lack of knowledge, right? Um, and, you know, I, I, I genuinely believe that, that the vast majority of the people in the world want to do the right thing. They want a, they want a positive future. They want, they're willing to, to take the steps now to ensure that our, our great grandchildren have a, a world to inherit, and but the problem is that they don't always know what to do. And you you have a really good example, I guess, of, of you know paper versus plastic, right? And and bags where people might be getting a paper bag because they think it's the right thing to do, when in reality it might not be the right thing because they're not taking the whole big picture. They're not zooming out uh, to the big picture. And I talk about zooming out as as a dolly zoom. And a dolly zoom is a cinematic term that I borrowed. That basically means you you dolly the camera back as you as you zoom the lens in, or or vice versa. And it's used in a lot of films like Jaws and Psycho. But anyway, it it basically means in this context that we zoom out to the biggest picture possible, but without losing the worm's eye details on the ground. And we and we keep in focus the short-term effects of what we're doing while we zoom out to the long-term effects and the multi-generational effects. And I think a lot of what you're doing in your education, uh, educational projects and, and your TED Talk that got over a million views that I highly recommend everybody, everybody watch uh, is to start to dispel some of those myths and, and to basically empower people with the knowledge to do, to do the right thing. Cause I, like I said, I think most people will do the, the right thing. And uh, uh, you know, there's, I guess a lot of, to use your words, a lot of environmental folklore that we, that we need to overcome. Can I add to my, the, the thing that I most recently learned, actually my sister made me aware of this. Um, so yeah, I have a Ted talk from like seven years ago called paper versus plastic. And I go on about bags. And for many years, I was kind of known as the bag lady. Um, because <laughs> is that plastic bags, when you look at the full life cycle, they have a lower impact than paper, not because plastic's better than paper. It's that the amount of paper required to achieve the same functionality as carrying groceries home on a plastic bag is greater. And so you have it just a kind of bigger impact per like functional unit okay and the paper has a big impact on the planet now what i just learned um is that the guy who created the plastic bag was actually trying to solve a problem he was really passionate about solving the problem of the 1950s guess what it was deforestation from paper bags wow so the plastic bag was designed to be lightweight compact and carryable and reusable so that you could stop using paper bags, which in those days was a huge environmental problem. <laughs> still is, right? They still are. I mean, this is a classic case of using the same thinking to solve a problem that got you into the problem, right? So it was right, Einstein right, right. thought that's not a good idea. And, yeah. you know, Peter Senge, systems thinker, has a great line, which is that um, we should uh, be sure to solve um you know, not create tomorrow's problems with our solutions today, essentially. Right. Exactly. And, you know, one other quote that I love is from um, another systems thinker, Russell Arkoff, who says, it's better to solve the right problem wrong than the wrong problem right. And I think that that's also part of our, the myth conceptions, the myths and the things that we have is that we solve, we go all gung-ho solving completely the wrong problem. And so you might make the most beautiful solution, but if the problem's wrong, what's the point? Because you haven't actually really kind of understood what's going on. And so, you know, there's so much, um, there's so much uh, opportunity to, to kind of um, un unveil, you know, the world and see the hidden secrets of the things around us and, and to be have that curiosity mindset that we get kind of bashed out of us through education at school and to find ways of being um, more 
present in the systems around us in all their chaos and glory and complexity. And the, the other really great thing I love in systems thinking is that there is no blame because if everything's interconnected and everything's extremely complicated, that you actually truly can't blame any one part of the system. You can assign kind of a greater responsibility, but you can't say, well, that bit there is the main point of problem. So it's a really liberating mindset to have. So I guess the big question is in this era that we find ourselves in, which I've heard labeled the post-truth post era, where it's so easy to send out disinformation, misinformation, uh, you know, false, false statistics and, and everything else. You know, how, how can we, you know, sort through all that noise and get to the real answers? Um, I, and I... <laughs> So it's, I mean, this is obviously something that's that's been frustrating a lot of people, myself included. In you know, how do we get the the truth out um, amongst all the noise that's circling around? Well, I think for for every human, the truth is different, and that's the problem in that kind of quest. Um, so perhaps maybe the quest isn't to get the truth, but to perhaps change the vantage point or perspective, which is really what you're trying to help do. And, and in another way, I'm trying to help do in the sense that we don't just have this one, it's just not our one idea. It's just not this one view. So that horizontal linear perspective of the world, um, no matter what your base values and truths are, because truth is different for many people based on their own ideology and experience and, and philosophy. Um, I think that the, the your goal of uniting people around the common the common value of of the earth and it being our entire shared home a living ecosystem and organism that we're part of helps to give everybody that bigger picture perspective and i think that if on a very individual level we accept that we are locked into our own view and perspective of the world so you have seen earth from space i have seen video of earth from space <laughs> i have seen earth rise i have seen i can vicariously live through the detailed explanation that you provide but i will never ever know run what it's like to truly viscerally personally experience that and so that is what most of the world is like for people like somebody who's had an, a, a traumatic of an event or been abused you know so we talk about the concept of empathy, but I think, you know, it's more about this ability to have a, a, the ability to see the world from multiple vantage points and perspectives, not just our own um, uh, viewpoint, but to see it from these other perspectives, to, to live vicariously through the, the language of others where we can and to find ways of being our true self. Yes, what's true for me is different to what's true for you, but that we do have shared truths. So maybe then the outcome is like, how do we create the narrative of the shared truths or the shared values that are really important to us as a species. And I don't think there's one human alive today who would say that they don't want oxygen because they'd be dead 60 seconds yeah. late. And I think that, you know, the services that nature provides us for free are some of the universal truths that are of importance to us. So, you know, that's kind of how I would, I would think about that because I think humans are complicated and you can't make them all see your perspective of the world. You cannot make everybody see the planet from space the way you've seen it, even if they think they have. You have had one unique experience that is is like is so real to you, but all we can do is hope to experience what it's like. Do you see what I'm I, saying? But, if you, but there's a I think there's a distinction here though. Is I is I you know I have a lot of opinions that were formed by my life experiences over, you know, the decades that I've been on this planet and, and the, the, the little bit of time that I've been off the planet. And so those have helped formed opinion, opinions that I have. But as a, as a human species, the best we have right now is our rigorous peer reviewed scientific information, right? That is the best we have. Now is science always right? No, it's not always right. And, but science is, is humble enough there's enough humility in the scientific pursuit to recognize when a contradictory piece of evidence is presented. We, we abandon our, our old scientific theories and adopt the new scientific theories that, that are, have gone through the scientific process. And so I agree with everything you're saying, but, but I would also add to that that we have to base those things and, and our own truths on the best data that we have available. And as a species, the best data that we have available at the moment is 
our scientific uh, studies, uh, our you know, peer-reviewed, rigorous, um, interdisciplinary um, studies that um, cannot just be dismissed because of opinion. Um, we have to, we have to, we have to bring those into the conversation. There is a lot of difference between opinion and, and peer-reviewed science. And I think a lot of people have confounded, is that the right word? Conflated or confounded? I always get confused. They've made, they've made their, they've made their own opinions of opinions. And a lot of people can go online now since we've changed broadcasting processes and, and basically voice opinions. And um, maybe then the starting point is giving people the the BS detector on the difference between opinions and peer-reviewed <laughs> facts because that is hard. Um, Ron, I really love how you just you could just say, you know, for the years I've spent on the earth and the time <laughs> I've spent off the earth. They're truly because I think about it and I'm like, it's like I when I was a kid. I really wanted to know what it would be like to live inside someone else's head. That sounds creepy. But what I actually would just thought about it was like, I remember seeing this guy walking down the street and I was just thinking, what do you want his life's like? Like, you know, I was just sitting there thinking, what do you want, what he feels like? What does the sun feel like for him on his skin? You know, this was, I was a very inquisitive, you know, 10 year old. And ever since then, I've always been very perplexed by this idea that we will always be, I will always be me as far as I know, for as long as I live with all of my, inner brain and and you will always be you and you've had this unique experience which you know is lucky you kind of thing but at the same time we all have our own unique experiences that we can perhaps even use as as our um our kind of tools for helping to create change you know what i mean like it doesn't have to be that there is a universal truth in regards to the planet and the science of how it works and everything but how do we as a complex species with multiple opinions and perspectives and values and ideas and opinions come to that collaborative outcome that you're talking about? How do we do that? And I think that maybe finding a way of sharing the perspective of others, even if we don't agree with them or something, I don't know. So I think you bring up the, the main point of, uh, and, the, and the main requirement for us to be able to solve the problems that we face. And, you know, we talked about that we're at this this fork in the road. We're at this really critical juncture of, of human history and, and a juncture of the history of all life on our planet right now. And, you know, I, I think what is going to be required for us to come go down the right path and to and to come out of this thing and to be able to thrive and reach equilibrium and, and everything else is an evolutionary leap. Uh, and, you know, I think the first big evolutionary leap the, the leap that made us human in the first place was our when we evolved to the point where we had the ability to self-reflect, when we had the ability to to project our conscious thought outwards, you know, billions of years or backwards billions of years, to think of something other than the the, the present moment, right? To think to think of a possible future that's not the, the the present. So I think in order for us to get on the right path, we need to take the next giant leap in evolution, and that's to realize that the self that we're reflecting on is not just an individual, but it's part of a larger cosmic journey. That, that the self that we're reflecting on is, uh, in, in, a, in a sense, the, the human organism. It's, a, in a sense, all life on the earth. And in a sense, it's the entire universe. And I, you know, I, I know that's you know, a, a, a pretty uh, deep path to go down. But I think you know, the, the slightest recognition of that of your sharing in humanity with another person, that we are not just, you know, a life, we're life itself. We're not just a life, we're life itself. We are the embodiment of life uh, in individual nodes called persons, but we're together a collective life that has to act collectively. I think that's the next giant leap of evolution. Even if you don't like the other node. Exactly. <laughs> especially, especially if you don't like the other node. Yeah, because that what that enables us to do is to have empathy. To, and that's what you that's what you were expressing is, is you are empathizing with a person walking down the street, wondering out of curiosity and empathy, what what that person's life is like. And I think if we don't have the capability to do that, we don't have the capability to solve any of our problems. And so I think that's probably a good place to end. <laughs> I agree. I agree. About that. But, but Leila, how can people find out more about you, um, about your work? You have so much stuff going on. You have so many great things that you're doing. Um, can you share your websites or, or, yeah, or so anything else? 
for the unschools, unschools.co, so U-N-S-C-L-O-O, no, S-C-H-O-O-L-S.co, unschools.co. We have lots of different resources and content. There's heaps of free stuff there. Um, if you're interested in, in circular economy stuff, as well as we have programs and classes and um, it's a it's a school for adults, by the way. <laughs> it's a school for um, humans who have usually woken up one day and gone, holy crap, this isn't how I wanted the world to be. I want to contribute to making it a better place. Right. So they come to the unschool, undo the damage of all of that mainstream education and, and learn systems thinking and sustainability. Um, and then I also have um, Disrupt Design, which is a design agency where we use design as a catalyst for change. And through that, we work with organizations. We, we collaborate, we design uh, tools and resources to help, whether it be internal organizational change or larger scale um, impact. So we've done lots of different projects, education systems for Finland, for Thailand. And so, yeah, you can find all of those things online and you can also just Google me. You can see my TED Talks. I've got lots of stuff online as well from all the talks and things I've done and books I've written and stuff. So, you know, yeah, I mean, internet. I, <laughs> I encourage everybody to do just that because because uh, I, I've learned so much from you uh, and I and I really appreciate and admire everything that you're doing uh, and you you are making a huge difference in the world well, and, you, and, that, that and actually thank you <laughs> thanks everybody who joined and thanks for all your questions and comments um, keep them coming uh, even if you're if listening to this not live, put the comments in there. We'll do the best, very best we can to uh, to answer them. And uh, next week, uh, we've got a great guest. It's the former chief of staff of the United States Air Force, and so that's going to be a that's going to be a great conversation. So uh, we'll see you all next week. Take care. Thank you for joining us during this conversation from the orbital perspective, and thank you for being a part of an emerging unity on our planet. We are strongest when we are aligned around the truth of our underlying unity. Together, we are unstoppable and can build a positive, restorative future, a future that we would all want to be a part of. Please subscribe to the Orbital Perspective podcast and follow us on social media. Thank you for all that you're doing and all that you will do to help make life on our planet as beautiful as it looks from space. 